0: Welcome to the Godspeed Institute, an enlightening and positive forum exploring all the world's religions and spiritual belief systems as an on-air classroom in an effort to help people better understand each other, promote tolerance, and foster peace. I'm your host, Kerr Hollandbeck. Reverend Carol Richardson is a Christian minister with a gift for healing and celestial communications. Born to missionary parents on the equator in the Democratic Republic of Congo and raised in three African countries and three different states in the US, Carol started out with an interest in public health, receiving her bachelor's degree in psychology from Texas Christian University and her Master of Public Health degree from the University of Texas. During this time, she married, had two children, and was widowed at the age of twenty-eight. Feeling called to Christian ministry after her husband's sudden death by cerebral aneurysm at the age of thirty-four, she received her Master of Divinity degree from Vanderbilt in December 1993 and was ordained the following year into the Disciples of Christ Church. Carol is now a practitioner at the Washington Institute of Medicine in Washington, D.C., as well as a teacher at the Lightworker Training Institute, where she holds classes as well as an interfaith light circle meditation group. She is the author of the books Aging Well, Be Your Best Self Forever, and Exodus 2012, A Mission to Save the Earth. Reverend Carol, welcome to the program, and thank you so much for being with us today thank you care i 'm so glad to be here well, my goodness your your um, journey has taken you uh, far and wide, and we have a fascinating uh, discussion I think ahead of us today <laughs> I hope so <laughs> well why don 't we be- begin with your early life mm-hmm. and start with that uh, the, the foundation of what it was like to be a child of missionary
1: parents? <laughs> Well, I suppose I should, uh, should add, you know, there was always sort of this sense of privilege, um, being an American traveling overseas that, uh, and probably white American, I should probably bring in the racial sensitivity. So, um, that's really an important issue, something that has made me aware lifelong about issues of race and privilege. Um, I didn't formally get any education on that per se until I went to Vanderbilt Divinity School, but then I became aware of, um, you know, an, an ongoing journey as well, of becoming aware of how those things affect us. But um, as far as being born in Africa and being raised by missionaries, um, off and on, back and forth in the U.S. and Africa, um, it's really that my parents set this model of service. They both had Ivy League graduate degrees, so they were very rational. My mom is still alive, but... Um, Has dementia now, so she's not quite as, you know, able to do the mental um, impressiveness that she used to be able to do, but um, both parents, uh, highly intelligent people who were not so much focused on converting people as serving in the name of Jesus Christ, so that if people then chose to accept Christ, it would be because they experienced the love, you know, and the care. And so my father's whole career was about education in Africa. My mom's a nurse, and so she could do nursing everywhere that we lived if she chose to. And um, just she was my early role model for um Teaching, spiritual, teaching me about faith and spirituality. but um, growing up, I was in in Africa, I was aware often of being a minority. Um, we went to a lot of different churches, and uh, my parents, for instance, as missionaries, would um, pray at the table. I remember when I was very young, I remember my father sometimes reading scriptures at the table. Um, so it was probably a different life than a lot of people had. Thank you so much for that. Um,
0: could you tell me a little bit more when you say um, how life in, as, a, as a white minority there you get, you know, made you more sensitized or sensitive regarding the issue of race? Uh, let's dig a little deeper into that because children are so impressionable and growing up um, like that are, are so insightful mm-hmm. as well. So to your young eyes, what did you see? That helped to form you
1: Kara, i 'm going to be honest i don't think I was aware of it at the time, but it's been an ongoing lesson on my journey to look back at that and I've had people help me do that, and at Vanderbilt certainly became more aware of the issues as well mm-hmm. I've had a lot of anti racism training um, i so, as a child, I think we're, we need to jump ahead to some of the multicultural experiences, but I want to share one story of when my parents were missionaries, um, what my mom modeled. Uh, there was one point when I was about four years old, and I was sick at home. And my mom was mostly home with us at that point, um, but I remember her going off and helping another child who had something more drastic going on because she was a nurse. She it was a neighbor child in the neighborhood. She went and helped this child. And it was just a dramatic sort of sense of abandonment at a young age and getting introduced to that concept. But no, you're not the center of the universe. Your mother has to go help somebody else who needs help more. Um, it was, And of course, I did have com- companionship because we always had domestic help when we lived in Africa. Um, So there was an adult with me, but that was this, you know, this orientation of always go and serve and go and help that my mother um, epitomized all the way through age 65 when she went to Somalia, believe it or not, with Church World Service. And um, that was right after the U.S. Marines had gone into Somalia. So she was in a very risky situation. So my mom's kind of the hero in my mind of, of how you live for others sort of the maternal American family version of Mother Teresa kind of person.
0: That's great. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. And you made a point mm-hmm. uh, earlier of saying that both your parents had um, Ivy League graduate degrees. And to me, that was sort of implying that they could have done anything in their career, mm-hmm. but that they mm-hmm. chose to serve. Mm-hmm. And in yes. in what ways did they serve and help uh, the the people in Africa, and and you mentioned there were three countries you grew up in. Um, what what were they, and and what
1: did they need? Uh, well, what do they need? That <laughs> that brings up for me Congo, and it's the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and it's many needs at this point. It's a much neglected uh, country in the scale of world events. Um, uh, what did they need back then? Education, I think, was primary. Um, that was my father's focus and um, he focused his whole career on that even past being a missionary. Um, he also served with the African-American Institute. We lived in Tanzania one year with that and the Ivory Coast one year with that. We, that was following living in New York um, where he started working with the African-American Institute. So his whole focus was empowering people through education Um, There was one one story you'd probably want to hear during Congo independence in 1960. My mom uh, took us kids as refugees to what was northern Rhodesia at the time, which I believe is Zambia now. So we actually exited, we were in the southern part of the Congo at that time in what is called Lubumbashi now. It had a Belgian name of Elizabethville back then, but the true name is Lubumbashi. And so we got out to be safe, and my father stayed there and some church folks very kindly warned him that there was going to be shooting one night. So he actually hid under a bed in order to avoid, you know, being in the fray of flying bullets. And my father was such a humble man that I did not know that until he died, and it came to me to do his eulogy, and or fell to me to do his eulogy. Um, so he had never shared that story with me. And he had also was he also was the founding dean. Of the Congo Protestant University's, um, theological school there in Lubumbashi, but I also didn't know that until I returned to the Congo in 2005, and some lovely folks who knew him, um, told me that story. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, he's listed in, um, the Stone Campbell Movement Encyclopedia, um, as having done that very thing, and yet he was humble and never, never told me that, so. Um, Thank you, Collided. thank you
0: for that. I um, I had a friend in college who joined the Peace Corps and was assigned mm-hmm. to uh, uh, a country in Central Africa, and her letters were, you know, once immersed, her letters were this odd combination mm. of English and French and things mm. like, I'm baking bread now and there's a coup on. <laughs> um, <laughs> wow, she was a changed person when she returned to I the know. U.S. And... Um, you know, you're talking about your father. That's a great story. Uh, we, mm-hmm. My husband and I talk about humility and what it means pretty often um, mm-hmm. because we know it's about being right-sized, um, but that also means stepping up to what you can do, not mm-hmm. just holding back uh, where you feel you might have weaknesses. Uh, mm-hmm. And it sounds like your dad was right there, as you said, very you know, humble person, but it also sounds as though you were kind of following in your mother's footsteps when you were uh, entering the public health field. And were you drawn to doing similar work as your mom?
1: Um, I kind of did lean in that direction. Um, She had a psychology and religion degree from Texas Christian University, TCU, and I went to TCU and studied psychology. And then... um, it's sort of hard to tell this story out of order like that. I want to mention a couple of things. I, my last two years of high school were actually back in the Congo at the American school where I started kindergarten, um, but we had lived so many places in between. But we... Oh, this is out of order. Um, so those we had lived in Chevy Chase, Maryland, right outside of Washington, D.C., for six years, and then went back to Congo when I was in high school. And so that really set my head spinning, so after my years at TCU, I was trying to figure out how to get back to Africa, and I actually did an internship during college at AfriCare, an organization in Washington, D.C., and then applied to the Peace Corps um, my senior year of college, but didn't get a medical clearance because I'd had knee problems since I was 18. And actually, I would like to share a story about that in terms of white affluence and privilege. When we were in Congo, when it was a year and I was a teenager, I um, developed these knee problems. And I remember getting to go as my father was with U.S. AID, the part of the State Department, U.S. Agency for International Development at that point. So plenty of privilege. So to deal with my knee issues, my father, I think it was, or my mother, I forget which, took me to this local hospital to see a doctor. And there was care a whole line of people sitting outside on the sidewalk, leaning against a wall with their food or their whatever. I presume either waiting to get in or they may have been family members um, waiting for time to take food to their loved ones in the hospital. But here I was as a white person getting to walk past all of these people who were waiting with my knee problem that wasn't so bad that I couldn't walk in the hospital and get immediately seen. That to me was such a shocking experience of privilege. It just, kind of horrified me from the inside out.
0: I can imagine. And thank you for sharing that. Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned before about things going out of order, and it reminded me, or it made mm-hmm. me think that, you know, just regarding my faith journey, I'm mm-hmm. not sure that these things happen in order. <laughs> <laughs> I think okay. you know faith might be more of a have a spiral shape to it so Absolutely, you yeah. know the, the things that affect us as kids and then as adults and mm-hmm. then going back to the childhood um mm-hmm. you know it, I think it I think it's more of that sort of a journey where we mm-hmm. can look back and say oh oh that makes sense it's interesting you went to college and and got your masters in Texas now is that because your your family was from Texas originally what drew you to Texas mm-hmm.
1: Well, um, my mom is originally from Texas. My dad from, was from Ohio, as the Africans would say, oh, you were from two different tribes. <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: so yes, they were from different tribes, as it were. Um, but I, as I said, I had to choose a college from mm-hmm. Congo, Zaire, and um, the My brother was at Indiana University. I had no desire to go there. My sister was living in Australia at the time, and my grandmother was the only other relative I had anywhere in the U.S., and she was in Texas. And I was kind of, I felt intimidated applying to college. Uh, I don't know why, but I did. (laughs) So I started to apply to Yale because my mom had gone there, and I kind of wanted to go there and couldn't really even just complete the application. So I applied to Texas Christian <laughs> University thinking, well, I mean, it asked why would you be a good candidate for Yale? And at that point I had no sense of why I would be interest, you know, interesting to an Ivy League school. Oh, so That's,
0: that's interesting. Um, yeah.
1: Well, I had, well, part of the reason for that though was that we had been in these fantastic schools here in Montgomery County, Maryland, this is where I happen to be now again. Um, and they were such excellent schools. And then I went back to the American School of Kinshasa, and hmm. I just got to blow off things. Nobody was going to force me to take elementary functions and analytic geometry, so I didn't. Oh,
0: that's a good You know, thing. it wasn't, yeah. <laughs> wasn't even
1: offered there. I could have taken calculus if I'd wanted to, but nobody pushed me. Hmm no adult pushed me for my last years of high school. I took a physics course for one semester. I was the only girl in the class and I kept asking why and the teacher said, we don't ask why in physics. So I just memorized the formulas and then switched to a different class the next semester. Huh. And since then, I have found out from a number of people that, yes, you absolutely do ask why in physics. And now I'm happy to say my son is working on a Ph.D. in physics oh, <laughs> at Boston great. University. Oh, that's great. So, but, so I felt pretty disempowered educationally, um, By making that transition, because I didn't, I mean, I was in, you know, the advanced classes and so forth here in Maryland, and, but I just sort of let go. I didn't push myself. Mm. And so it would have been hard to say, oh, yes, I've taken all the best classes imaginable, you know, Uh, my academics are top notch. I couldn't have said that to Yale. I couldn't have said, oh, I pushed myself to do everything I could at this school. So, you know yeah uh, but how it, would i have filled that out but
0: at the same time you had such an interesting childhood that you know mm-hmm. at the moment couldn't be framed i guess you know in terms of context yet because we you know take a lifetime to grow and and do this journey I'm sure if you filled that out now it would come across very differently
1: It would, I would say things like um, this is one of the experiences I wanted to tie into why did I do public health my mom volunteered as a nurse at the Salvation Army Clinic while we were there, while I was in high school she served as a nurse at the Embassy the American Embassy Medical Unit and um, then she volunteered some at the Salvation Army Clinic and I went with her one Saturday and I think I was about 17-ish and there was a young teenage girl brought in by her father and she had a baby and they were all so thin and the baby was so malnourished it was unclear what its age was. It was hard to tell its age and that was my first experience of there, but for the grace of God, go I, which is a terrible saying because the grace of God was, you know, with her as well. You know, that's also a privileged kind of statement. Um, and that, again, was my other big shocker, you know. And so I organized a group of girls to, to quote-unquote, package medicines for the Salvation Army and care. What that meant was we would take a couple of aspirins, you know the old-fashioned aspirin tablets, not the enteric-coated ones, or um, a couple of malaria pills, and we would wrap them in brown, um, little brown paper wrappers that we had cut and labeled with the, what was in them, and. Um, we would wrap them a certain way and that would be what was handed out at the Salvation Army Clinic. And I had struggles getting the girls to, to keep doing that with me, but that, you know, that was something I really wanted to do. So that was part of my oomph to want to go into public health was I knew the very, very desperate needs of people.
0: Mm. And the needs of simple things that are available elsewhere, as you say, through privilege. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. I want to get to what is a pivotal event in your life, something that was a catalyst for, I guess, the future journey that you were going Mm -hmm. to take Mm -hmm. and ask you um, about your husband and Mm -hmm. how you met and to share, if you would, about what happened in your experience of marriage and then, of course, the widowhood at a young age.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. I'd like to keep this part short because actually it is the launching pad to um, just this incredible spiritual journey since then. Um, uh, My late husband's name was David Richardson and we met at Central Christian Church in San Antonio, Texas where I had moved um, after getting rejected by the Peace Corps. <laughs> I worked for a while. My parents lived in South Texas, and at that point they had their own farm, little farm and stuff, and which was kind of cool. And um, it was great to live close to Mexico, to be able to trot across the border. Um, and of course, they were also close to the Gulf Coast, so getting to go to the beach and stuff and take my kids there ended up being wonderful. But... Um, In the meantime, I um, had uh, looked for a job and found one in San Antonio. So I was actually working with autistic children at that point and went to Central Christian Church. And somebody introduced me, the teacher of the single Sunday school class, and that was my late husband. Um, So we, you know, after a while started dating and actually... I asked him if we could talk sometime because my dad was trying to get me to go to seminary. He wanted me to go to Yale Divinity School. And so I needed somebody to talk to and say, you know, how do I figure this out? And that was the first conversation I had with my late husband, but it never ended up going that direction because we ended up getting together and um, getting married. Um, After I started working in public health, he followed me to Houston. And uh, Houston is where I got my um, Master of Public Health from the Health Science Center there, uh, which I think is now called UT Health. I've shortened the name, which is good. Um, So we got married and uh, had two children, and when the children were seven months and 22 months old, he... uh, we and interestingly we had just dedicated our son in church he was the younger of the two we had already dedicated my daughter that morning we had just dedicated our son in church and so his parents were still in town which was very handy because his father had, had a stroke so it would have been harder for them to go back and forth to be there during that week he had basically a, a week of being brain-dead in the hospital and um I had had an interesting experience the weekend before this hemorrhage where I was actually attending a Christian women's conference, which happened to be back at texas christian and um I had met my first woman theologian, heard my first woman theologian speak, and she had talked about God and being a grandmother, and the nature of God, and being a grandmother in the same sentence, and I was kind of like, wow, you can do that, Um, because I had had thoughts about um the feminine aspect of God, but that's the feminine side of God is something that you don't usually get to talk about in churches, and so here was this woman theologian talking about that very thing. And I had gone to a workshop, it was about dreams, and I was never really much into dreams, but I was in a small group, and someone said, you're so strong, are you a minister? And I'm thinking, well, what did I say in that work? I still have no clue what I said in that workshop, but, you know, in the small group, that I have no idea why that person said that to me. And then I met a woman who was working on a PhD at a seminary, and so that was this really intense little, wow, um theological are you a minister event, um and feminist theology at that. Um and then a week later my husband hemorrhages right after we've dedicated our son in church. And then I have a whole week of he's basically brain dead in the hospital after they did some surgery to try to take care of it. It was too late. And everybody kept saying, You're so strong, are you a minister? You're so strong. Are you a minister? So finally care I asked my brother because I thought, I know who will tell me the absolute truth. (laughs) Um, And so I asked my brother and he was like, oh, yeah, you're strong. You were strong when we were in college. You were strong when we were teenagers. You were strong when we were kids. And care, I have no idea what he was talking about. Is that maybe the college bit? But I have no idea what what that is, but now that I spent what felt like a hundred years being a single mom, (laughs) now I can say, yeah, I've had to go through a whole lot and just being strong is a necessity.
0: Yes, but I want to ask the question though, in that moment when you're married with two small children and your husband is suddenly taken like that at a young age without warning, what did it do to your faith? How how did you turn to your faith, or did you ever question it in your grief?
1: Mm-hmm. Initially, it strengthened my faith, and then I just fell apart because it was way too hard to raise two children by myself while grieving. Um, and I just fell apart and stopped drawing on that faith. Um, I, there were some spiritually powerful moments. Um, the time of his death... Um, it was a horrifying moment because he went into what's called decerebrate posturing. And that's where the body is moving. He looks like a zombie. And I want to reemphasize, I was raised by these intellectual parents who never really believed in miracles. And my mom still pretty much doesn't. We were never allowed to put an angel on the Christmas tree because, according to my mom, that was a Catholic idea. Um, I later delighted when I discovered, hey, even Jesus talked about angels. Why doesn't my mom believe in them? Because Jesus said them. She's all about whatever Jesus said, you know. But they were very, very rational people, so I didn't believe in the devil or anything like that. But as I watched my late husband go into this state called decerebrate posturing, which I didn't know what it was called at the time, it was absolutely horrifying the way his body was moving. He was doing something called sonorous breathing, which is just horrendous. He looked as much like a zombie as anything, I hope I never see anything like that ever, ever, ever again. And then, Care, I saw this little bluish white smoky bit go up. And I knew that I was seeing his soul leave his body, even though I had never read anything about it, never been told anything about that. And I, as someone else has said to me, that was a gift to you. And yes that was a tremendous gift it went up it went up and so i actually intuitively knew that his soul had left his body at that point but of course the western medical response is, oh well his body is still breathing we can intubate and we won't, you know do everything mechanical but i would hold his hand in the hospital And not feel anything, and I did not know what was going on. I knew something was missing, and it wasn't till decades later I was trained as a healer, and I was had been doing healings on people, and had learned to feel people's energy field and care. What I realized was missing was his spiritual energy. His spiritual energy field was gone because his soul had already left his body.
0: Yes, there's an essence. I I was aware of that with my father as well when he passed, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. there is an essence of who we are mm-hmm. that is no longer there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, science does catch up with these things, and <clears throat> they're actually able to measure the slightest difference in weight at that mm-hmm. moment, that there mm-hmm. is actually a substance that is leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, the experience, I'm so sorry um, that you went through that. Um, you know, well, but
1: it was a gift in many ways.
0: Yes, at the same time, it it led you on a very new path, and mm-hmm. so now let's discuss then that you were called following this experience. You were called mm-hmm. to Christian ministry, mm-hmm. um, specifically, and that's you know very intriguing. Other uh, someone else, you know, might have gone through a mourning process and then remarried and continued on on that track, but you were called on a different track. And you went... So did you go to seminary then?
1: Well, let me discuss the issue of call first, if I may. Yes, please um, do. My sense of calling came because I had served on um, a regional church, not regional, area church board. And I had sat there once and looked around and realized I was the only non-minister on this group. And then when I went through grief there was a couple of ministers on that um from that group that I called to you know talk with about this and w- one came to visit me and we talked and I said you know I'm thinking about going into ministry because um I believe that God loves me and I want to help other people believe that God loves them when they go through hard times And this man had one of those deep male God sort of voices, great for preaching, and he said, well, one of the definitions of call is seeing the need and being willing to fulfill it. And I thought, oh my gosh, is this man sitting here in my living room telling me in my living room that I've been called to ministry? Does it happen that way? And Kara, my mom spent a month with me after my husband died, helping me with some kids and laundry and dishes and cooking and such, uh, which was very kind of her, of course, and um, very necessary for me. And um, I remember going out to the backyard to talk with her. And, of course, she had sensed her call as a missionary. And she said, well, the way I used to explain to people um, my sense of call was if God called you up literally on the phone and asked you to go to Africa, would you go? And you'd probably say no. And I would have said yes and did say yes, you know. It's like, oh, even my mom isn't saying, no, you're not being called. So, what's going on here? My sister gave her input, which was negative, but um, we'll set that aside um, for now. Um, well, that's just sisters and, bickering. <laughs> uh, well, it's sisters knowing your well, weak points, which, yeah. which comes up later. But.
0: but you know what's interesting to me is that you were mentioning privilege earlier regarding race mm-hmm. and being in mm-hmm. a minority as mm-hmm. you were um, as as a white person in Africa, but your life has mm-hmm. also been affected by another kind of privilege, which has to do with gender, and has to do with, you know, the male, pr- traditionally the male privilege in the mm-hmm. church, or certain churches, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you're go- engaging that as well. Oh yeah, and, huge. And um, I, can, I can relate to that coming from the uh, Catholic background and going mm-hmm. to Catholic seminary for my th- theology, Um, Mm -hmm. work. And along the way, and I'll just say this as an aside, I don't know if you can relate to it or not. But I always in um, I'm in terms of fear, theology, I'm relatively conservative, in terms of Mm -hmm. what I believe, how I Mm -hmm. live it out is progressive. And that's Mm -hmm. what I encourage others is to live it out in this, you know, contemporary, you know, way where you are your authentic Mm -hmm. self. And Mm -hmm. maybe that fits in well with a structure, maybe it doesn't. And we'll talk about Mm -hmm. that later. But at the time, I nonetheless still used the male language of the Trinity in my work, the Mm -hmm. Father, Son, and Holy Mm -hmm. Spirit, and Mm -hmm. was quite, you know, written off (laughs) by the um, feminist theologians at the time Mm -hmm. at -hmm. at school as being, you know, unenlightened. Mm -hmm. But I felt called and was struggling with that in the Catholic Mm -hmm. arena Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and when the school itself, which had was struggling, this particular school, decided to close, or at least temporarily, to shut down. I had a particular professor I was very inspired by and, and rather close to intellectually, and we discussed this one day, and I asked him about closing down the school and why they're doing it, and Father said, you know, well, because the school's going in a direction we don't really like right now. And I said, what do you mean? And he referred to this sort of new theologies that were emerging and going on a different mm-hmm, track. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I said, but I never, I was not called to study those things. I was called to study the sacraments and the Holy Spirit and mm-hmm. and these things. And without editing himself, this, you know, nearly elderly priest with a very long and respected career looked at me and said, but you were different. Mm-hmm. And that is is the beginning of a discernment process
1: in -hmm. the Catholic
0: Church, which actually is not allowed to take place. Mm -hmm. So the conversation ended there. It wasn't allowed to take place with a woman. Right. You see, in terms of what I was called to do. Right. So I went on a journey myself, and that's another topic. But Mm -hmm. there is this ongoing struggle with, as you're sharing, Mm -hmm. believing that you're there, And, you know, and what's ironic is I wound up getting a scholarship, which normally would go to a priest or someone on the priest track, the ordination track with the explanation, nobody has been called. So we're going to give this to you. (gasps) Wow. Is that powerful in terms of perception? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, no one's called, but you're standing there. (laughs)
1: Yeah, so so even no recognition of your call. It's just
0: very interesting, the perceptions that we're still, Mm -hmm. you know, engaging and working through. And I totally applaud your journey in this because Mm -hmm. you'll make it your own. And that's that's really important.
1: Well, yes, and I'd really love to get the good stuff. And the whole feminist thing, I'd love to have another conversation with you about that, because it's precisely that sense of, women are less than, that to me speaks to the necessity of understanding that, but the divine is feminine as well. The Holy Spirit is the feminine presence of God in many ways. And that's really important so that we all attain the ultimate, to me, the ultimate spiritual goal is that union with the divine. And until we Balance the sacred feminine and the sacred sacred masculine both within ourselves. We are not able to attain that sort of union or enlightened state. In my my perspective.
0: So then you did go and become an ordained minister, right? <laughs> I did. Okay. I did.
1: Mm-hmm. But then you
0: we have so much to talk about. I I, I, know I kind of do. want to go. I may not take a break during this program because there's a lot to to get into um, with you. So then as a Christian minister, you had further experiences that began to inform your faith. Yeah. And can you share a little bit about that regarding um, autobiography of a yogi and other influences?
1: Yes. I'd actually like to do this by shifting to telling the story of my journey as a healer, becoming a healer and being a healer, if I may, is that all right? You have the floor, do it. Please, tell, okay. tell your story. Okay. Yeah. okay. So, when I was 13 years old, and we lived in Chevy Chase, Maryland, and um, very rational, highly academic, secular kind of setting, I got to travel down to Raleigh-Durham area of North Carolina, with one of my dad's colleagues. I have no idea why she took me. I'm sure my parents were like, take this obnoxious 13-year-old away from us because I went through quite a stage at age 13. I can remember um, being in that stage, actually. Um, But uh, actually, that year also, I became a born-again Christian, by the way, which is a whole other story. But anyway, really fastened, I mean, that is an important part because that, to me, led me to being what's called spirit-filled, which, to me, actually is a really important piece of my journey so I don't mean to skip that but the other fascinating thing that happened when I was 13 was um, in this journey down to North Carolina where Duke near Duke University we met this man from India who described himself as a mystic who was being studied by Duke University for psychic experiences to determine whether or not they're predictable real whatever this when I was 13 this would have been 1972 so back in the heyday of that kind of research. And um, I saw this mystic from India place his hands on this woman's head and cure her headache. And then, care this mystic from India, turned to me and said, you can cure animals with your hands. I was 13. I lived in Chevy Chase, Maryland. How was I supposed to make sense of this? I didn't live in India where I, where I could have gone to an ashram and said, what does this mean? There was no mentoring program then for teenagers who have some kind of esoteric spiritual gift. And I didn't go to the kind of church where it was, you know, empowered at all. So I just kind of made sense of it by thinking, well, I love animals enough to pet them the way they want to be petted. So of course they like how I pet them. That's interesting. But I did write it down in my 13-year-old diary, which is the only year I kept a diary growing up. And, um, so that was my first inkling about being a healer, but it lay dormant for years. And then while I was at Vanderbilt Divinity School, um, my mom sent me a nursing journal article about therapeutic touch, which is ironic because as I've explained, she was very scientific in her faith and approach to everything. But, um, part of the reason I think she did that was I had been told right when my husband died that my children each had 50-50 chances of inheriting the kind of lethal cerebral aneurysm that killed not only my late husband but one of his brothers years before I met him, and so every time they had a headache, I was a basket case. Every time they fell and hit their heads, I was a basket case. Um, I remember my son tripped on a rug at church on the anniversary of his father's death one year, and and got a big old goose egg on his head. And it just I lived life in this trauma for for years. Um, and so my mom sent this article, um, and I hadn't had them tested because, um, a doctor, the best doctor I could find said, wait a few years, there'll be non-invasive testing developed. So I was waiting for the non-invasive testing to be developed. And my mom sent this nursing journal article on therapeutic touch. So I did what it said. And after my kids would go to bed at night, I would stroke their heads and, um, pray and just, you know ask for healing for them. And then we had magnetic resonance angiograms, which showed that neither one had uh, at least congenital cerebral aneurysms of any sort. And so, yay, you know, who knows what happened, but they didn't show anything. And then a few years later, I moved to Michigan, and I was serving a church, and I had a church member say something really strange to me, about his wife, and I was trying to figure out how to deal with that. And I, from Christian ministry, there's a lot of rational stuff now that goes on, but not necessarily some of the more esoteric spiritual stuff. So I didn't know how to deal with it. So I noticed this card for a psychic. And while I really have never really intended to like go see a psychic myself, I took the card thinking maybe this person, based on what's on their card, can help me with this church member. So I called up the psychic, and instead of talking with me about the person in the church, he started talking to me about me. And he said, you have the gift of healing, and you've used it on your children. <laughs> so, care it took me quite a while to think back, well, why do I use this gift on my children? Wow. And then I realized, oh, yeah, that, well, that was the only time at that
0: point. Mm, that's fascinating. You know, but the, it comes to mind regarding your mom I know that we talk about being scientific and being rational and all Mm
1: -hmm. but
0: you know there's not so much that's rational about Jesus I mean he's a (laughs) radical and and if he laid hands on people to heal Mm -hmm. them Mm -hmm. then and said all these things I do you can do then you know as a matter of faith um you know what is the difference necessarily between a laying on of hands or therapeutic touch or, you know, perhaps even Reiki, which is more chakra oriented. But, you know, Mm -hmm. there's a there are traditions around the world of Mm -hmm. healing through
1: hands. But in the Western scientific worldview, that's not really real. And my parents bought into that world View the Western scientific worldview, which for 400 years has separated itself from spirituality and said, "No, only what we can prove by through the scientific method is really real." And so my parents um, did their faith because you know, love is love is important. Service is important. Not even so much the emphasis on love, but service is important. Caring for people's general well-being, empowering them, educating them—that was their emphasis. Not miracles. Not some amazing faith that would turn things around in life. So I didn't actually have that kind of faith-based spiritual strength to draw on as I went through my struggles for many years. And it really wasn't until I got onto this Eastern path that I was able to make sense of my suffering and my struggles and how to deal with it from a more positive um, worldview and spirituality.
0: So can you share a little bit then about... Uh, the eastern path and what you
1: learned and how you're able to apply it yes thank you for asking so after moving to michigan and serving this church i had a church member who took uh, a healing course with these people who came over from england and she came to me and she said you've got to take the meditation course now that meant five nights in a row i was a single mom And working at a church where there are always meetings, and God somehow cleared the schedule, got my kids taken care of, so that I could go actually take this meditation course five evenings, um, one week. And that was the fall of 1996, and I learned Raja Yoga Meditation um, from a teacher who came over from the Self Realization Meditation Healing Center in Queen Camel, Somerset, England, where there is a woman guru whose name is Meta Yogananda. And I had just the most amazing experience. At the same time, I happened to be reading Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda, and I know he forgives me for not saying his name with a very good accent, Um, but um, and I do, I want to come back to the multicultural point here because this is really important. When I first started reading Autobiography of a Yogi, I started reading it with this Western scientific worldview slash mindset. And so I started reading his miracles, and I was like, this stuff can't be real. People can't be in two bodies and they're, you know, in this, you know, out of body and have their you know, what's it called, circumlocation or whatever, they're, where they're actually physically present in two places. This isn't is possible, you know, and all the other amazing miracles in that book. I was like, you can't do that. And then I realized, oh, but I'm insulting him by not believing his truth. I need to do the multicultural move of respecting another human being for speaking truth, even though it doesn't seem to mesh with my sense of truth. So I decided to trust and respect him and believe that he was speaking truth from his cultural perspective.
0: Right. You were, you were from two different tribes.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that made all the difference in the world. So eventually, later in the book, I realized, oh, Jesus was like a Hindu yogi and his ability to do miracles made sense finally. So,
0: so this enabled you then to pull together many skills already and intuitive healing abilities that you were kind of struggling through, I guess, ever since right. you heard when you were 13 that something was up. And mm-hmm. um, and now uh, between your Christian faith and, and now the Eastern mm-hmm. traditions, mm-hmm. it sounds like you were able to pull together something that was more holistic
1: mm-hmm. for you. It took a long time, Care. Um, I went over to England four years in a row for lovely, amazing training. They teach something called progressive counseling. I'm not allowed to use that label legally here because I'm not qualified to be called a counselor in the right, U.S. Right. by degree programs that I have. Um, so, but that, the courses that I had with the Self-Realization Meditation Healing Center were just the most amazing experiences of God ever. I remember by, I went over three weeks one year for the progressive counseling training, and it was like spiritual boot camp, how to get rid of your ego so that the divine consciousness can, you know, be present in you and through you and help people. And um then the next year, well, no, at the end of that first, I think it was the end, no, maybe it was the end of the second year, another three weeks of training, I got to do the last Um, we did these role plays and they're not just like secular role plays you actually prayed for the part to come to us if we were the client and we prayed for the intuitive guidance and unconditional love to come through us as a progressive counselor practicing in the role play and so i got to be the progressive counselor in the very last role play and i just remember care it was my first experience of god in my head It was as though I knew what to say, how to say it, how to move and so forth. And it wasn't just me. There was more than me. And it was the best spiritual high ever to experience God within oneself.
0: Thank you for that, Carol. Now, going forward then Mm -hmm. from there, I feel like we need to do a second show. <laughs> but, <laughs> we do. But in our, in our time rem- remaining here in the next, mm-hmm. you know, seven, eight, seven minutes or so of the interview, could you share some about the healing mm-hmm. journey that progressed? And I'd love to hear about the angelic role, mm-hmm. the intercession um that you've been able to develop as well along these lines of celestial communications in your head. I love that.
1: Well, it's a common experience for those who believe in the path of self-realization. Because the whole goal is to become self-realized. And that's not a selfish thing. That means a higher self. That means getting your ego out of the way and, and allowing Christ consciousness to develop within oneself and then um, becoming one with God, which I'm not yet to that divine consciousness, God consciousness, self-realized state, but I've made enough progress. I could say, this is an amazing journey. It's the only thing worth doing in life, really. Um, And uh, it's the main thing worth doing in life. All else contributes to that, hopefully, in some way. Um, Well, I... I don't feel like I can just jump from this to the amazing experiences, but I'd like to say I did then take animal healing with these folks, and finally the prophecy, if you will, from decades before made sense. I took natural spiritual healing from them. I learned Kriya Yoga. I took Reiki 1 and Reiki 2, and, and maybe this would be a good closing story because it draws in Jesus again during my Reiki one attunement and I've seen attunements done different ways by different Reiki masters the Reiki master under whom I trained John Kronak of uh, Spirit of Wellness in Stanton Michigan he did the attunement by standing behind me and care I felt like I was being blasted with this heavenly energy it just felt amazing And I actually had three visions during that experience the Reiki one attunement one is a personal vision Um, one was being like a baby held in the arms of the mother goddess and then I was the mother goddess and then I was the baby being held in the arms of the mother goddess and then I was the mother goddess And it just went back and forth to get across to me this unity we are one we are one And that was just awesome. And then, care, I had this vision where I was standing out in basically a desert. And I don't know how, but I knew I was the woman at the well. In the story of John, I was the woman at the well, standing near the well. And I, I sensed Jesus up and to my right, And care I heard in my head Jesus say, this is the living water of which I spoke. And care honestly, my first reaction was, "Oh, my mom would be so excited that Jesus uses proper grammar in <laughs> proper English." <laughs> um, and that, that's so important to her, and she loves Jesus, and you know, always reads her red letter Bible. You know, uh, what Jesus said is what counts. Yes, um, and in, he doesn't
0: split his infinitives. Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> exactly.
1: Of which I spoke. Yes. Oh. Um,
0: well, that's yeah, that's an so. important vision.
1: And, well, and then I realized what he was saying is that the Reiki energy is the living water. So when I finished the course, I went back to back home and got out my Bible and looked through John. And there are other places where Jesus says that out of you shall come forth streams of living water. And I realized that Jesus is saying we're all meant to be springs of this living water, springs of Reiki energy. Mm. That's who we are. When we let the divine flow of love and healing come through us, that's what happens.
0: Now, when I hear a phrase like Reiki attunement, and I consider the word to be, you know, to be attuned, uh, Mm -hmm. for me, it creates an image of being aligned somehow with what might be, in quotes, a grid of the universal energy. Yes. Um, Does that resonate with you?
1: yes the universal consciousness the divine divine energy um, part of it is clearing our blocks so that we don't have stuck places that would block the flow of that energy through us um, part of it is you know helping us vibrate at a higher level so that we can be better vessels of healing for god and service to god um yeah it's just a lovely experience when done really with that sacred intent. And intention is everything in energy work.
0: And so now, um, for folks who may not be familiar, Reiki attunement would then lead you to be, uh, I think Reiki 1 attunement would be leading you to do physical healing uh, Mm -hmm. by that laying on of hands, but through the Reiki Mm -hmm. tradition.
1: I use the approach really from natural spiritual healing, but then my faith journey progressed on from there, and I've learned things since then. So the healing that I do, and I'm now starting to teach, is is kind of beyond what the two trainings that I've learned. And it, it is working with the archangels. It
0: is lovely. Now, uh, you've done Reiki 1 and Reiki 2? Yes. Are you planning to do Reiki 3? I see no need, because as I
1: said, what I do is kind of
0: beyond all the training I've right.
1: received at this point. I've had tons of healing training. Um, I only
0: just, and I only ask because here, you know, in the West, when we talk about these things, Reiki mm-hmm. 3 is the master level where then people right. teach others. And I was just right. wondering, because of what we discussed earlier, if there was any holding back.
1: I wouldn't be teaching people the Reiki techniques, however. I would be, t- and I have started to teach people, um, the techniques that i use the ascended masters and the archangels are saying you know we're here to help you on your spiritual journey let us help you and that's that's why i believe i'm here is to help people hear that message and it's there's so much more to it than that and i i do hope we can have another program because we haven't even gotten to some of the the really best 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 stuff
0: Well, I know you've written two really great books. Perhaps you can also write a third one to share this journey.
1: I do plan to. um, Right now, I recently started working on something called Adventures of a Lightworker. My own daughter, she once said, Mom, the first book you should have written would have been your autobiography because you've had such an interesting life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but like I said, yeah. it's a spiral. <laughs> right, right. There's so a, it'll, you'll come. come back.
0: Yes, come back around. It'll come.
1: The, the point to <laughs> me is that my life is not meant to be about myself. I believe our lives are meant to be about God, about divine presence, and what divine presence is doing in this world. So Yes, um, that is my goal, even though we've talked about me and my life a lot. Care, Please you know, understand, that's my goal. What I has know, God been doing?
0: But on some level, we can't separate it because, you know, if we are agents of love, we still have this yeah. physical body and this name. Right. And right. I know it's a struggle because it's the service and the love that's that's most mm-hmm. important. And, you know, as we near the end of the interview, I just want to let listeners know that all of your, you know, your website contact book information will be posted shortly on godspeedinstitute.com. And I just want to thank you so much. It's been a privilege to have even this short time together to share about your very rich um, journey. And I appreciate your, your faith, your spirituality, and your adventure, your adventurous nature regarding your path. Oh, you're so welcome.
1: Thank you. Uh, immeasurably thank you. What a treat. And
0: thank you listeners for joining us for the Godspeed Institute today. The Godspeed Institute is an independent educational organization dedicated to promoting religious tolerance and spiritually based living. If you'd like to hear this or any of our previous programs again or send it to someone, simply go to Godspeedinstitute.com please send your comments to info at godspeedinstitute.com. We always enjoy hearing from you. And join us again as we continue to explore all the world's religions and spiritual belief systems. Until then, we wish you Godspeed on your journey.